0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Years ago, when husband and wife co-authors Jeff Mana and Nicola Twilley first began working on their new book called Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine, their topic may have seemed to many to have little modern relevance, but that was before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Jeff Mana is an architecture and technology blogger and Nicola Twilley is a science journalist and the co-host of the Gastropod podcast, which explores the intersection of science and food. Their book is published by Farris, Strauss, and Giroux and brings them to our show now. Welcome, although I, I understand Jeff isn't here yet, Nicola?
1: We're both here, actually, sitting yeah. oh, right great. next to each other. Oh, um, great. And it's great. great to be on the show, hi. Yeah.
0: Thanks so much for having us. Uh, Nicola, you write about seeing a certain irony to finishing a book about quarantine while having to live under lockdown for COVID-19?
1: It was um, a pretty uh, meta-level experience, I have to say, writing about uh, quarantine while uh, being in lockdown. in um, <laughs> very intense, of course. We were locked down together. We're a husband and wife team. So um, it was definitely intense conditions mm-hmm. to write a book.
0: Well, it's easier to co-author a book when you're sitting side by side, I assume. Jeff, mm-hmm. when when you began researching the subject, didn't the subject of quarantine seem to be a relatively neat niche subject?
2: Um, it, it both did and it didn't. It, it, it certainly had its own sense of a kind of, um, you know, an obsolete or historical process that, you know, people no longer uh, use for medical containment or that kind of thing. Um, But what we really found as we researched it was not only that quarantine um, was really kind of ubiquitous. uh, You know, it was was everywhere we looked as we looked into the the food industry and agriculture, we found quarantine. Um, You know, when you look into, of course, international travel, uh, you find quarantine laws. Um, Even when we looked into um, uh, planetary protection, which is how NASA uh, uses quarantine to protect astronauts going to and from the International Space Station and in other fields, um, you know, quarantine was everywhere. And our, 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 our thesis of the book actually was that quarantine is only going to become, uh, you know, much more important in the future. Um, you know, we actually sold the book under the original title of The Coming Quarantine, um, because uh-huh. our idea was in the years to come with all of these emerging diseases and international travel, um, you know, we'd have to rely on quarantine much more. So it would go from being a very niche topic to being a global one.
0: But uh, I, I throw these questions out to both of you from now on. Weren't... Uh some of the public health experts you interviewed sure that mass quarantines were a thing of the past and we're talking about four or five years ago
1: this is true i mean we did meet um officials including at the world health Organization. who really felt that with modern medicine um, that yeah quarantine it's a blunt instrument no one no one would deny that and that Mm. we would we had really moved past that point in human history other public health officials um, told us it was still essential um, in that when there is an emerging disease that we don't um, have, you know, a, a good test for, a good a cure for, let alone a vaccine for, quarantine is still our only tool. So there was even, but I would say even among public health officials, there was disbelief that we would have the mm-hmm. mass um, quarantines that we have had, the mass lockdowns and the mass shelter in place. People had sort of drawn up these scenarios, role played these scenarios, even, and yet it, it was just so hard to imagine that it would really happen because it hadn't in so long. That I think there was a certain sort of level of, of yeah, right, we should be prepared, but uh, you know.
0: Well, pretty much all of the quarantines that you write about were fairly local and here we're talking about a worldwide situation. Uh, Didn't the idea of writing about how it's been used in the past occur to you when you were in Sydney, Australia in 2009? What happened when you met a friend near a hotel originally designed as a quarantine station?
2: Um, yeah, that's, that's right, actually. Uh, back in 2009, uh, we were in Sydney and uh, we noticed a uh, former quarantine station that was now a kind of spa hotel um, called Hugh Station. And uh, what was uh, interesting to us about that was that, you know, quarantine that seemed to that seemed to exemplify how quarantine seemed to be a thing of the past. Um, you know, it was uh, it leaves these kinds of ruins around the world or, or buildings that have been turned into other types of facilities. Um, you know, you rarely walked, uh, you know, out and saw a functioning quarantine station, you know, on the outskirts of the city that had been um, torn down or turned into a hotel or turned into an art gallery or that kind of thing. Um, and so initially, when we first saw that, you know, we started started looking into quarantine precisely as a historical process, something that had maybe been forgotten, something that was maybe obsolete. Um, you know, and that goes back to what we were discussing about how, um, you know, as we started looking into it, of course, quarantine actually, you know, it's it's become a kind of ubiquitous um, but overlooked process and we began to really kind of pull on the thread of quarantine and that's when we started realizing that you know this thing is going to become more important in the future uh, not less
0: but was it easy to research um, is there a lot of material out there
1: that's a great question um you know many of the former quarantine facilities of the past um have been demolished or repurposed. Some of them are ruins. We, in the book, we travel all around the Adriatic and mm. the Mediterranean. They're visiting what's left of, you know, quarantine from its early days, from its invention during the Black Death, and um, some of those places are, uh, you know, accessible to the public some of them are hard to get into one of them one one of them we had to jump a couple fences um, and scramble around in some crumbling ruins so there it, it's 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 not they're not you know on the tourism beaten path I would say there isn't a lot of you know quarantine um, tourism sites out there you have to make an effort
0: now you mentioned the black death the bubonic plague was uh, Dubrovnik where you visited uh the first city to institute a quarantine uh, in, in July 1377? Um, that's right. The, the, the first formal quarantine order um,
2: was implemented there in Dubrovnik. Uh, that was at that point a city in the Venetian Republic. Uh, and it was kind of uh, out on the uh, it was it was the first city really that merchants would come to on their way to Venice proper. And uh, the health authorities there began to notice that there seemed to be a correlation. Um, so, a new ship would come in with a, a, you know, cargo on board and with crews that had been um, mingling with people abroad, um, you know, in in regions that are, you know, now Turkey or the Middle East. And they decided that what they wanted to do is, uh, you know, because they noticed a correlation between that and the disease breaking out, was that if they just delayed the arrival of these ships. Um, if they said, you know, we're going to anchor these ships uh, on an island or put the crew, um, you know, in a building on this peninsula um, or keep the ship out in the bay, um, let's wait for a certain period of time and then we'll see if the disease still emerges. We'll see if it still arrives with them. Um, And that set the early kind of conceptual stage for quarantine. And then quarantine itself then, of course, was formalized in in 1377 and, uh, you know, took its name from the Venetian dialect of quarantena um, which means forty. So quaranta giorni in in contemporary Italian, um, you know, means forty days. And that that period of waiting was what was used to see if this uh, disease would arrive along with people.
0: And you note that it had a religious pedigree.
1: Well, yeah, that sort of came as the uh, as the idea solidified. I mean, this is a this is a you know a, an experiment at first. The health authorities in Dubrovnik, first and then in Venice, are trying to still be able to trade, which brings the city, you know, a lot of its income and revenue. These were big trading ports. Um, They didn't want to lose out on that, but they didn't want everyone to die from this terrifying new disease, the black death either. And so they were trying this out as an experiment. Initially it was for a 30 day period, but then um, that 40 day uh, period emerged, I think, you know, primarily because of its religious resonance. Forty days, you know, you hear it in the Bible all the time. Mm-hmm. Forty days, forty nights in the desert, um, uh, you know, of rain. All of these things. It's a period of time in which something changes. Um, in Hebrew thought, it's sort of the length of a generation. It's enough time for transformation to occur or something to be revealed, and that's kind of at the heart of thinking about quarantine. Is you've got this state of uncertainty. Um, You don't know if this ship or this crew or these people or the the goods they're carrying are dangerous. And you need this period of time and space to find out whether they are dangerous or safe. You need uh, this 40 days symbolic period of time to see whether they could be proven safe.
0: So Venice, uh, as you point out, was an ideal place because uh, it uh, had all those little islands, you could uh, cut off people from an island. It became the the site of the first permanent lazaretto or, or quarantine hospital. Uh, uh, so uh, d- 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 that Venice is really the source of it all. Were the the successful? How how effective were they in saving lives at the time?
2: Um, Yeah, that's a it's a it's a it's a great question. Um, You know, they they were they they were successful. And um, as you mentioned, you know, Venice, because of its very makeup, you know, the geography of the city itself with all those islands and all those bridges and the lagoon um, makes it a kind of an ideal spatial laboratory for experimenting with quarantine. Um, it allowed the Venetian authorities to build those lazarettos, the permanent uh, quarantine stations on on islands, uh, you know, choosing progressively further islands that uh, you know would take longer t- for people to get to um and hold hold p- potentially infected passengers, um you know even even further from the city center. And um, but the lazarettos were successful. You know, no quarantine is necessarily one hundred percent foolproof. um, but nevertheless, the idea that you have a place that you can ask people to go to, um, in that case, it was usually a community-based quarantine. Um, it wasn't only, uh, you know, uh, the the way we experience it today, which was, you know, stay at home or social distancing. Um, you know, entire families, uh, entire neighborhoods, obviously, whole shifts. Um, you know, communities would go to the lazaretto, uh, uh, effectively, uh, as a as a kind of group experience, and then move through it in a timed manner, so that you know that they would all leave after 40 days and then come back into the city. Hmm. And so with and closely administered, uh, uh, you know, uh, o- oversight of, of when people arrived and when they went back to the home, um, of making sure that the city itself functioned and had what we would now call essential workers, you know, uh, sanitation workers, grave diggers, those kinds of people. Um, it became a pretty well oiled machine in terms of how quarantine functioned in the city. And the lazarettos were obviously, you know, the, the anchor points for that. And uh, and as you mentioned also, were the first permanent facilities in, in the world.
1: They were seen as so essential that everyone in Venice, when they were making their wills, um, the notaries w- were required to ask if they would like to leave money to the Lazaretto. <laughs> it was an essential urban institution seen as sort of really safeguarding the city.
0: You visited former lazarettos in Dubrovnik, Split, Malta, Venice, how often were they employed and what kinds of circumstances? Uh, I'm assuming leprosy was a big concern.
1: Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I, they arose in response to the Black Death, and that was really their initial mm-hmm. um, use. Over time, of course, the diseases that people were afraid of mm-hmm. changed, Um and you know by the 1800s you get a, a huge wave of cholera that people are afraid of and that is sweeping through europe in into successive waves killing a lot of people at a time more people than any other infectious disease that century and so the thing that people are worried about at later phases is the yellow fever um there are sort of successive waves that quarantine is used for um, but it's an interesting sort of balance as jeff said during times of an outbreak in the city, it was local people who might be detained in a quarantine um, in one of these lazeratives. And then during, during normal times when there wasn't an outbreak, you used it for people who are coming into the city from potentially infected locations or locations that were far afield and you didn't know what the conditions were there. So during those times, it sort of had a, It was run on a profit basis and merchants would pay for this day. And then during times of outbreak in the city, um, that's when, you know, the community would be housed and fed and kept safe there.
0: And uh, that continued into at least the 19th century. Byron wrote uh, in his poem, Farewell to to Malta. Adieu, thou damned, the damned quarantine that gave me fever and the spleen. Hmm. (laughs)
1: Yeah, he was not a fan, and I think uh, that's one of the funny things about our research is you find across history, people have found quarantine inconvenient, frustrating, boring. Um, They found it uh, even terrifying, and some people have been very productive. There are those who have written poems like Byron and and even entire novels in quarantine, But a lot of people, have, uh, as, as we all discovered during lockdown, have found these restrictions on their mobility to be, yeah, ultimately kind of frustrating, boring, stifling.
0: My guests on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org are right, Nicola Twilley and Jeff Manoff co-authors of Until Proven Safe, the History and Future of Quarantine, published by Farris Strauss and Giroux. Uh, Now, you have such varied interests uh, in your uh, other careers. Uh, Did that lead you to investigate the topic of quarantine from every angle, from architecture and design to science, health? even poetry from the 14th century to the present day and and into the future?
2: Yeah, I would definitely say that our our backgrounds and our interests contributed to the sort of broad ranging nature of the book. Uh, You know, my own background is mostly writing, as you mentioned, about architecture and design. And so, you know, what really struck me is the the kind of fundamental role that architecture plays in quarantine. You know, it's the use of buildings and the use of even separate rooms, uh, hallways, uh, you know, circulation through a building. Um, You know, it's the it's the use of architecture in a medical capacity to help protect people from an outbreak. Um, And so there's really something fascinating for me about that, you know, tracking how architecture has changed over the centuries uh, or for that matter, not changed over the centuries um, when it comes to addressing certain kinds of diseases and arresting transmission of those. And so that was definitely something that went into my, uh, you know, uh, contributed to my interest in the topic.
1: And in, the, in the second half of the book, we sort of look at quarantine in other contexts. We're so used to talking about quarantine in a human medical context. But for me, coming you know with my podcast about food and my science writing, I was really interested in the kinds of quarantines that keep our food supply safe and that we rely on every day, even now to um, prevent entire harvests being wiped out by pathogens, pests and diseases. Um, So we look at that. And what's interesting about that is, you know, when you look at quarantine in these different uh, contexts, you actually find a lot of overlaps in in the same sorts of calculus, the the idea of risk and um, Mm -hmm. the costs and the benefits and who's benefiting, who's being exposed. Um, how do you make those decisions in this situation of uncertainty? The entire kind of uh, point of quarantine is that you don't know yet whether something's dangerous. And that uncertainty just brings with it a lot of debates and a lot of difficult sort of calculations and decisions. And seeing how those play out in different areas was something that was really interesting to us. As Jeff mentioned earlier, you know, NASA uses quarantine um, to protect the rest of the universe from earth life and earth uh, from any potential alien germs. And that's a whole other way of thinking about quarantine and risk and uncertainty and, and what what is worth doing, what's not. Um, so the second half of the book really looks at quarantining these different circumstances and I think reflects some of, you know, I, as a science writer and a food reporter, I've got that <laughs> stuff in there. <laughs>
0: And we'll get into some of those things in more detail as the conversation continues. But I want to get back to the food thing. You learned about the quarantine of cacao plants in a greenhouse facility outside of London, there to protect the world's chocolate supply from an impending apocalypse. Did <laughs> they actually coin that word?
1: It's no, it's a word that has been coined by cacao researchers, and I hate to ruin everyone's day. But in fact, we chocolate is under threat, it's one of the world's most vulnerable diseases, uh, plants to pests and diseases. It has a whole slew of these terrible sounding. Diseases that can wipe out out up to you know half of a harvest. Um, they're called things like uh, you know frosty pod and witch's broom and so on. And um, because cacao plants and chocolate is grown in three different sort of distinct areas in the world, researchers often want to move plants between those regions. Um, but they really do not want to move diseases from one region to the next. Mm. Um, that would be, as, as one researcher told us, curtains for chocolate. Um, and so all of those uh, cacao plants that move around the world, they have to spend a three-year period in quarantine wow. in this one greenhouse outside of London. And you might think, you know, why, uh, why quarantine chocolate in the British Isles? Is not known for its tropical mm. uh, cacao-friendly climate, mm. and that's precisely why. Actually, there's nothing in the uh, in the UK that could possibly be threatened by any diseases um, these plants are carrying, and really, there's nothing in the UK that enjoys living mm. in those tropical conditions either. So it's what they call a, a climactic quarantine. It's it's a it's a using the the climate as a sort of barrier too, in addition to all the other air handling and, you know, double-paned glass and all of that. Um, but yeah, they, they all go there and wait to see if they're safe before they're sent on.
0: And then wheat has also been quarantined?
2: Um, yeah, that's right. There's another, um, well, for, for this disease uh, known as wheat rust, uh, we actually went to another facility. This was in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, run by the USDA, um, Where they're licensed to work with uh, samples of wheat rust and to study its effects on wheat plants, and the fear there is that if rust were to um, hit the uh, North American wheat-growing regions, um, you know it could have a, a sizable and very traumatic impact on the output and the growth of of wheat in North America. So, wheat rust is already spreading through some of the you know the bread baskets elsewhere in the world, um, Central Asia. Uh, The Middle East and the fear is that it can have, um, you know, maybe not introduce global famine, but nevertheless have a a sizable impact on and and, and create uh, conditions of hunger. And so, you know, that was an example of, uh, you know, a a fascinating place, actually, where, you know, even just to get into the facility to see these plants and to see the wheat rust, um, you know, we had to remove all of our clothes. Uh, we had to shower. Uh, we had to put on a Tyvek suit and uh, a pair of Crocs. Uh, we one thing that was quite funny while researching the book was the learning that Crocs, uh, you know, the uh, the the footwear, um, are a, a, a kind of godsend for the biosecurity industry because they're very easy to clean. Um, they're they're easy and lightweight. Uh, you know, you can sh- you swap them between researchers after a simple sterilization. And so um, we put on Crocs and these suits and went in. And um, it was interesting as well because we were allowed to take notes, um, but then we weren't allowed to take anything out again. And so we had to have our notes uh, photographed, the JPEG emailed to us, and then the notebook pages that we had used had to be destroyed or burned before leaving the facility because the fear is that, um, you know, we simply don't want to let this wheat rust get out. And so it was that kind of thing that was really interesting just in terms of the, the outer limits of containment Um, you know, the kinds of facilities that are designed, um, the protocols that people develop in order to help uh, keep something in place inside a building and not let it interact with that or escape into the outside world. Uh, And we saw that level of detail, you know, throughout the quarantine um, process, both for uh, plants and animals, but obviously, of course, humans, and even in the case of nuclear waste, which is another chapter in our book.
1: It's all this idea of how do you manage the threat and all these multiple layers of defenses, which is so interesting. the Cereal Disease Lab in St. Paul is a, another example actually of using the climate too. They only work with the most dangerous strain of wheat rust during the winter when it's absolutely freezing outside because we're talking about Minnesota here. And so there's nothing green for if, if this wheat rust did accidentally escape, and um, there's nothing green for it to, to land on. And there's just layer after layer and redundancy after redundancy to try to keep things contained
0: hearing my dog barking reminded me that uh, the the uh, this can extend to some weird stories like Johnny Depp's dogs uh, being nearly put down by Australian authorities due a quarantine violation.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, these stories pop up, you know, all the time, um, you know, for many, many years and, and and to the present day in fact. You know, we have a Google alert on for a quarantine um and those kinds of stories pop up all the time but um but yeah quarantine uh, you know quarantine in Australia is is taken very very seriously uh you know it's a it's a remote island nation um it's got a very sensitive ecosystem and it's very easy to overrun so you know rabbits is a famous example you know the rabbit through the fence that was built in Australia to try to deal with this kind of um epidemic of uh, explosive rabbit population growth um you know it's just a a good example of how easy uh, invasive species can take root there um, but so when Johnny Depp uh, snuck his dogs into Australia without going through quarantine procedures, uh, it was taken quite seriously, and his dogs were actually at threat. Um, he was too. He was in legal jeopardy. Um, his dogs were in existential jeopardy. Um, but those kinds of quarantine clubs, quote unquote, happen a lot. You know another example actually, which was uh, tragic from a scientific point of view, um was that the Natural history museum in Paris had shipped, uh, you know, you know, invaluable, um, botanical samples to, uh, an equivalent museum in Australia. Um, you know, these were seeds and, and, and plant, uh, samples that have been gathered, uh, centuries earlier, uh, some of which were the only example known in science. And when the, uh, package arrived, uh, Australian quarantine authorities, um, noticed that it was labeled wrong, didn't know what was inside, feared that it might be a quarantine violation, and they just destroyed the entire shipment. Um, so you know, priceless botanical samples were lost to science because of uh, a quarantine uh, mishap. Um, but those kinds of stories you know are you know happen throughout uh, you know quarantine, even going back to um you know the tragic in history. you know one story we we talk about in the book is a a a guard at a lazaretto in Split Croatia um, who noticed a really beautiful scarf being held in the goods yard at the at the local quarantine station. Um, And I guess underestimating the danger, uh, he stole the scarf. He brought it home and gave it to his wife. Um, But unbeknownst to him, it had the fleas that carried Black Death on it. And so not only did his wife come down with Black Death and die, but it actually led to an outbreak of the Black Death in the city. Um, You know, so I mentioned that just because it's it's interesting with, you know, things like Johnny Depp sneaking his dogs into Australia or a guard sneaking a scarf out of quarantine. Um, You know, quarantine often comes down to these small moments of vulnerability, um, human error, uh, you know, people making a mistake, someone maybe deliberately violating quarantine because they think it's not going to have an effect on anyone else. Um, but then, you know, tragedy can unfold from that. And that, that was something that we saw consistently uh, in our research.
0: Were you surprised by how often it's been employed and under such a wide range of circumstances?
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the amazing things that um, that came from writing the book is realizing that not only it has quarantine. Um, being so widely used and, and being so essential in many ways, but it's also really shaped the world around us and sort of hardened into some of the, the bureaucracy and the, and the tools that control our movement around the world today. So there are quarantine lines, former places where quarantine was enforced that have become international borders the the entire idea of sort of the united nations existing comes out of um european nations meeting to determine quarantine regulations those were the first kind of international cooperative conferences that led to the league of nations that then led to the united nations um so that system of global governments we can really attribute to quarantine um even excuse me even the passport Um, that's a thing that we use to move around the world today or not move, depending on what your passport um, is. And and, and that has its ancestor in quarantine too, in the very first health passports, which were issued by um, towns, cities in Italy um, to people who are wanting to travel but not wanting to quarantine when they got to their destination. So say you wanted to go from Bologna to Rome, say, you would go to your local officials and say, "Please issue me a health passport." And they'd create a little official document that said who you were, what you looked like, and said you, this person is coming from an uninfected location, a safe location. And then the idea is you would show that to authorities when you got to Rome and be able to skip quarantine. Um, and those those turned into the passports we know today. So it really ended up sort of being woven into the fabric of our world in a way that we didn't expect at all when we started researching it.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I kiss you, but I'm quarantined. I got to keep my lips off the scene. There ain't no cure for me. I probably ought to lay down and die hold you tight but i got to wait 14 nights influenza's got a hold of me i like to kiss you but i'm quarantine the doctor told me this morning Go on we're back with yourself. my guest uh, the co-authors of a new book called Until Proven Safe The History and Future of Quarantine published by Farrar, Straus and Giroux Nicola Twilley is uh, a co-host of the award-winning podcast Gastropod, which looks at food through the lens of history and science. She's uh, an award-winning contributor to The New Yorker, among other publications. And Jeff Maddow is the author of the New York Times bestseller A Burglar's Guide to the City, as well as the Architecture and Technology website. And uh, I don't know how you pronounce that, but it's B L D G B blog. Uh, he regularly... Nope. What do you want to say? Building? That's building blogging. Okay. Uh, he regularly writes for the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, the New Yorker Wired, and, and other publications. Now, um, we've been talking about all the positives, but haven't quarantine powers been abused throughout history? Um, they have, and uh, you know, and they
2: continue to be and, and will be in the future. Um, you know, quarantine at its heart is based in uncertainty. Uh, you know, it's important to point out here that quarantine and isolation are are actually different. So if you know that you are infected, if you have a disease or an illness, uh, or for that matter, you know that your pet has a disease or an illness or a plant has a disease or an illness, um, and you separate yourself or you separate that thing, um, that's is- isolation. Quarantine is only when you suspect that you've been exposed to something. So you may not necessarily have the disease, but that's the problem. Um, you don't know if you have it, and so you might be giving it to others without, without knowing it. Um, and so quarantine is based in that it's a, it's a, it's about suspicion, it's about uncertainty, and that lends itself very well to being um, abused politically. So if you have maybe a bias against a certain kind of people, um, you know, as we saw even in in uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, if you know COVID is is you know quote unquote the kung flu, as as President Trump was was describing it then suddenly now, if, if you're just suspicious of all Asians or all Asian Americans, then quarantine would become a way to say, hey, look, you might be burying this disease. And so we're going to separate you from the population. Um, we actually saw that exact scenario in um, about 120 years ago in San Francisco when there was a bubonic plague outbreak. Um, it was associated with Chinese passengers uh, and Chinese workers. And so the city's Chinatown was quarantined. Um, uh, authorities actually literally put a rope around Chinatown Uh, in order to mark it off as uh, contaminated or potentially infected. And, uh, you know, damningly, they actually specifically avoided white-owned businesses, even if they were within the quarantine line. Um, So, you know, you could be, uh, if if you were a white business person, you know, you wouldn't have to uh, uh, respond to any kind of quarantine limitations. Um, You know, that was uh, pushed back against uh, in a lawsuit that was successful. And, you know, that helps to, uh, over time, sort of, uh, you, 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 you know, specify quarantine powers and make them more just. Um, but it is definitely the kind of thing that for centuries actually, you know it's ah it's 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 quite easy a power for authorities to abuse, and it has been abused.
1: One of the most shocking examples, I think, and something that most Americans have never heard of, even though it is the most recent mass quarantine before covid nineteen in u s. history, is something called the American Plan, um, which sounds like it should be about apple pie and baseball, but mm-hmm. is actually a it was actually a plan to use quarantine laws to detain women um, who were suspected of carrying and transmitting venereal disease. This um, was launched in 1917, but continued for decades after that. And tens of thousands of women were locked up under these laws um, just on the suspicion that they might. have venereal disease now there are a couple of things there wait, wait, know, it was that,
0: it was a way of protect a precaution to protect men who might be called to fight overseas in world war one so that was the justification. yeah
1: yeah now men can also carry and transmit venereal disease um mm-hmm. but they weren't the ones being locked up <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which L- only loose women <laughs> yeah and only loose women and then the grounds on which some of these women were detained a woman could be detained for simply dining alone um you know people would get into arguments with women and then report them oh she's a loose woman and that suspicion was enough to quarantine them this is the problem with quarantine in a lot of ways it's the inversion of our normal legal stance, that you're innocent until proven guilty. In quarantine, you're dangerous until proven safe. And that's what makes it so um, easy to abuse if you don't have the right protections built in and to use to really target certain groups, suspicious groups.
0: And then it isn't always applied evenly. For example, in 1991, an HIV prison camp to detain asylum workers was set up. By then, Attorney General William Barr. This is before he became Trump's Attorney General. But didn't Barr refuse to quarantine himself when he, when there was a potential exposure to the coronavirus in October 2020?
2: Uh, yeah, that's right. And and I think that that also shows just some of the hypocrisy that can emerge in uh, you know the political sphere and, and in that case specifically in the Trump administration. Um, but you do see people are, can be quite enthusiastic about applying quarantine to others, um, but the minute they are asked uh, to undergo those kinds of sacrifices, you know, to stay at home or to avoid others or to put a temporary, uh, you know, uh, you know, limits on their life, um, they refuse to do so. And so that is also just yeah one of the political contradictions or hypocrisies of quarantine.
0: Also, isn't it kind of like uh, inhuman in a way because? Quarantine has been thought of as a medical countermeasure rather than as a lived experience.
1: Yeah, this is something that um, really became evident, I think, to the world during COVID-19, but it was so interesting for us researching this book. Um, You know, even public health officials who sort of have thought deeply about quarantine and whether it works are thinking about things like oh well does it help flatten the curve that expression we heard everywhere um last year um does it help reduce transmission they're thinking about it as a medical tool the same way you would think about a drug but the difference is that quarant in quarantine it's people you're talking about they are living through it they have to live somewhere they have to um, you know, be quarantined somewhere. They have to somehow continue to pay their bills while that's happening. Something has to happen to their family. Is their family exposed or where are they being quarantined? Um, and also what are they doing? This is one of the amazing um, sort of, I, and one of my favorite sections of the book is where we look at, you know, quarantine has always been boring. It's always been underdesigned as an experience. And we talked to a boredom researcher for the book and she said, listen, boredom is just a sign that you're not finding what you're doing meaningful hmm. and the weird thing is quarantine is really meaningful it's it's a it's a heroic self sacrifice for the greater good it just doesn't feel that way. Um, and that's because no one has really thought through how to design it as a lived experience. And our uh, argument in the book is listen, we're going to be quarantining again. We know how to um, make things rewarding, motivating. You know, you get all these kind of behavioralists thinking about nudges. Companies are great at this. D- look at Disney, it can design experiences people love. Um, why don't we apply some of that creativ- creativity to? Thinking about what quarantine should be like as an experience so that both people have the safety net of, you know, the basics being covered, being able to quarantine um, safely and, uh, you know, not suffer economic harm and be able to eat and, you know, have their family protected. But also so it doesn't feel so lonely and boring for everyone.
0: Well, but th- this is this interest is nothing new. Uh, you write about John Howard, an 18th century prison reformer who became interested in the conditions of people kept in quarantine. What did he learn at the time?
2: Yeah, the Howard 1700s. was a
0: really fascinating figure who
2: uh, served as kind of a, um, you know, a, a, someone that we could pin a lot of our travels on and 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 use as a kind of um, yeah you know, someone who's, whose own work to, we could emulate. Um. So Howard was a prison reformer, as you mentioned, and that meant that he um, spent a considerable amount of time traveling around the UK, but also around Europe, um, as far east as Russia, you know, visiting prisons, jails and dungeons um, with an eye, eye on how people were being treated. Um, some of that was architectural, you know, was looking at whether or not the buildings had even windows for people, um, you mm-hmm. know, whether or not the floors were dirt or mud or, if you know, people were living in squalor, um, how waste was handled, et cetera. Um, you know whether or not the food was any good, if the, if they were being um, you know nutritionally uh, serviced. Um, and you know, this is a time as well when people were in prison, not just because of, you know, violent crime and that kind of thing, but um, you know relatively petty infractions that were sometimes financial in nature. And in fact, you had to sometimes pay, even if you were known to be innocent, to get out of jail. Um, so you're dealing with this whole series of injustices that Howard was looking to uh, uh, reform or offer advice about. But while he was traveling, he noticed also that in addition to jails and prisons, um, there were quarantine stations, there were Lazzaretto, um, and they were architecturally similar. And in fact, people were even being held under similar circumstances in them. Um, you know, you had rooms that were just uh, utterly squalid, uh, you know, with uh, without good uh, waste handling procedures, uh, without real access to fresh water. And so Howard, uh, at the, at, at, toward the end of his life, um, when he was already in his 60s, um, set out on another one of his long trips around Europe, um, where he would go to Lazarettos and quarantine stations and, um, you know, insist on entering them and effectively kind of cataloging everything that was wrong with them. And so what we wanted to do was really kind of use Howard um, and follow in his itinerary and go to many of the places that he himself went to. Um, so, you know, he went to Malta and so did we. Uh, we actually, uh, you know, went went into the ruins of the facility where Howard, Howard was held uh, 300 years earlier um, you know, he wow. was at the the uh, the islands of Venice that we also went to. You know, where he actually, um, you know, unlike us, uh, actually got onto an infected ship, uh, and so was forced to go into quarantine because he he had been exposed to typhus and needed to be uh, held separately from other people to see if the disease would emerge in him. But so, in any case, you know, his his uh, advice was not necessarily taken on board by British authorities. Um, there's a there's quite a long story there. Um, but in effect, though, he just wanted to insist that, you know, if we're going to hold people separately, whether it's because of crime or whether it's because of disease exposure, um, that we do so justly uh, and that we don't, uh, you know, it, it, over punish people for things that uh, that that, that uh, we, we could actually use architecture in a more humane way um, and make sure that they they've got uh, you know access to food and so on. And so, yeah, he was a, he was a kind of a quarantine hero, so to speak.
0: But even under the best of circumstances, don't quarantine infrastructures tend to be tailored to the previous epidemic uh, instead of anticipating whatever is to come? And it's could an we ad- have and could we have uh, anticipated uh, COVID-19?
1: <laughs> uh, the multimillion dollar question. But you're absolutely right that this is something that again and again, I mean, we visited an amazing, a splendid lazaretto in Ancona, Italy, that was built um, after the last outbreak of the plague or the plague. It was actually really never used for purpose. One of the most um, striking examples of this actually ended up being when we visited the new national quarantine uh, unit in Omaha, Nebraska. This is the mm. first federal quarantine facility that have been built in more than a century. Um, we toured it in May, 2019, when they were just finishing up construction. It actually officially opened its doors in January, 2020, You know, as mm-hmm. the first cases of COVID-19 were being reported in the U.S. in Seattle and elsewhere. And um, and that you think, oh great, well, we have a quarantine unit, um, just as the pandemic hits, what great timing. But that quarantine unit, only had 20 beds and it was really designed with ebola in mind it was response to ebola which was a a, a completely different disease um where you know it might just be a few
0: oops we're losing you you know
1: um, people traveling back from places where there was an outbreak who might need to quarantine rather than you know the entire population so again and again, that's a mistake that people made. You know, the last pandemic is the model in your mind. That's what you're thinking about. And it's very hard to kind of break out of that and say, we might be dealing with something different and we need to be ready for that too.
0: Yeah, well, uh, it it offers a, quote, a boutique experience, ideally suited to managing one or two patients at a time after they have been uh, had potential exposure to Ebola. But uh, then... Uh, Along came the coronavirus and uh, the people from the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Also, uh, the first American evacuation flight out of Wuhan uh, carried 195 passengers, a a lot more than could have been accommodated by the, the National Quarantine Unit with 20 beds. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that
2: that number alone just shows how um, ill-equipped that particular facility was to deal with the kind of national frontline response to the coronavirus or to any respiratory pandemic, um, you know, let alone, uh, you know, coronaviruses to
0: come. Uh, Mike, um, go ahead.
2: Uh, you know, I was going to just say that, you know, having because a little of difficulty
0: your, with the sound. Oh, no. Uh, we can hear you clearly. Yeah, We can hear so. you clearly. Yeah. But every once in a while you break up. Okay. Uh, OK. What were you? What did you just say? Repeat it, please. Um, Just with the sheer numbers of people that were coming back,
2: uh, you know, we had to rely as a nation on other types of infrastructure for quarantine. Mm -hmm. And so people were held instead on uh, National Guard bases, military bases. Um, They were held in hotels. Um, You know, the first Mm -hmm. image in our book, a a described image in our book um, is actually a um, an Econo Lodge outside Seattle that was purchased by uh, health authorities in Washington state. And it was marked as being a quarantine facility simply because they painted the sign black, uh, you know, (laughs) which felt, you know, almost like something out of the Middle Ages. So you can actually watch a video online as the glowing Econolide sign just becomes covered in black paint signifying quarantine. Um, But, you know, we spoke to the head of the 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 then head of the Army Corps of Engineers who pointed out that, um, you know, spaces of quarantine or potential quarantine actually surround us all at, at all times and at every scale. And so the Army Corps of Engineers actually embarked on a really interesting program, which was to identify a way to retrofit large architectural structures for quarantine. And so one of the things that was interesting is that the kind of cookie cutter landscape of of the United States, you know, where you've got um, suburbs that look like every other suburb or commercial strips that look like every other commercial strip. And And hotels that look like every other hotel is that actually lends itself quite well to uh, you know an emergency retrofit operation where you can simply take a kind of hotel that has the same floor plan or the same size of rooms and uh, turn it into something that would be better suited for medical isolation. And so you know the kind of things the problems that we saw actually during the coronavirus uh, outbreak was that or pandemic was that you know if you're asking people for mass quarantine or mass stay at home and mass lockdown, and if they have nowhere to go, then the order itself, uh, you know, sort of fails from the very beginning. So if you're on a university campus, but the dormitories don't necessarily uh, function in a in a in a way that allows people to isolate, uh, you know, comprehensively, um, that's a problem. We have to find a way to transform those dorms. And so, you know, one of the things that came up actually was just the the challenge of preparing for the next pandemic also means building into our architectural environment um, the capacity for isolation. And you know that might mean uh, you know uh, you know convention centers that can double as quarantine facilities or isolation wards, um, or even private homes, just with more uh, access to you know sort of pop-up infrastructure that will allow you to safely isolate yourself from, say, your grandparents who might be immunocompromised or grandchildren who you know, who might catch a certain kind of disease.
0: My guests on today's Leonard Lopate at Large are Jeff Mannaugh, M A N A U G H, and Nicola Twilley. Uh, they are the authors of a new book from Faris Strauss and Giroux called Until Proven Safe The History and Future of Quarantine, published. Well, as I said, by Farris, House and Giroux, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Yeah, you, you mentioned that a major problem uh, that we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic is that people can't quarantine if they can't afford to, don't have anywhere to go. Um, and uh, is anybody talking about redesigning the concept?
1: It's interesting. It's interesting it's happened at the federal level so actually federal quarantine regulations um uh, we spent a lot of time in the book talking to the head of the division of global migration and quarantine at the cdc um dr dr martin citron we talked to him a long time before covid 19 and we talked to him during covid 19 and he had spent a long time thinking through some of these issues and so at the federal level there is provision for people to not lose their job and to have their income made up and and you know food being provided and even a right of appeal and and sort of the 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 federal duty of care to someone that they've asked to make these sacrifices is very clear and spelled out in sort of a, a quarantine bill of rights almost but in we the don't US, have a yeah. Well, Go in ahead. the U.S., most of those quarantine powers actually live at the state and local level. Um, and so it's all very well that being spelled out at the federal level. But at at local and state levels, it's not necessarily in place or um, even frequently in place. And so th- that's an issue. The other thing is, you know, it's very easy for a health authority to say, well, we're not calling it a quarantine so um, we, that doesn't trigger all the rules that we've put in place to make quarantine fair and, and manageable. Mm. Um, we'll just call it a, a lockdown instead or a shelter in place instead. And then you get around having to apply the very things that you put in place to make quarantine fair, manageable and work better.
0: We have just a couple of minutes left, but I want to uh, talk about uh Casey Hickox, uh, you devote a whole chapter to her. She was a volunteer nurse who was forcibly kept in an isolation tent in 2014 when she arrived in New Jersey from Sierra Leone, where she treated Ebola patients. What were her reasons for resisting quarantine?
1: Yeah, Casey Hickox is a fascinating story because at the time I was completely wrong about her. I remember reading about this in the paper and thinking, what is this nurse's problem? Why doesn't she just submit to the three week quarantine and better safe than sorry, right? You know, how big a deal is this? But she obviously, as a public health nurse, knew what quarantine is for and what it's not for. And she knew this was a political move um, inspired by fear rather than science. Um, If you have, uh, you know, if you have. If you are contagious for Ebola, you have symptoms. So quarantine doesn't even really apply. Um, Unless you are symptomatic, you cannot be transmitting it. So there's no period of uncertainty. We know um, if you have Ebola and then you should be isolated, not quarantined. She did not have symptoms. Um, she knew what what made sense and what didn't, and she was being made a sort of um, scapegoat by uh, Chris Christie, first of all, and then Paul LePage, the go- then governor of um, Maine. And she really wanted to resist it because um, there was a huge. This was, a, you know, she's a volunteer with Doctors Without Borders. Um, they go and spend, you know, three weeks a month in the field. If they then have to add another three weeks of quarantine on the end of that, that's too long to take away from their jobs, let alone the stigma on their families. Um, Casey Hickok's boyfriend was told to stay home from campus. He was enrolled in, in nursing studies himself at the time at the University of Maine. And they they banned him from campus in case he was carrying the disease. So, you know, people just wouldn't want to do that. And in fact, recruitment to Doctors Without Borders, which was so desperately needed during the Ebola pandemic um, really fell because people saw what happened to Casey Hickox. So she was determined to fight it. The amazing thing about what she did, she won her case against Chris Christie, but rather than get a monetary reward, she instead said, no, what you have to do is enshrine a bill of rights for the quarantined into the New Jersey state law that, you know, argues for the least restrictive means, gives people a right of appeal, does all the things that make quarantine fair, just, scientifically reasonable and humane for the person who's being asked to make those sacrifices. So rather than take the money, she, you know, really tried to reform quarantine. She's another quarantine hero. And she was so maligned in the media at the time. It's a really interesting story.
0: Well, we have run out of time, but I do want to quote something, uh, Rather ominous that you write in the book. You say in the coming years we will almost certainly find ourselves more dependent on quarantine, not less. Well, maybe we'll be have we'll have to have you back sometime in the in mm. the near future. But thank you so much for talking with us today. Been fascinating, uh, Nicola Twilley and Jeff Manar. Their book, *Until Proven Safe: The History and Future of Quarantine*. It's published by Faris Strauss and Giroux. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks so much thanks for, having for having us. Thanks having you. Yeah, stay safe. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Leonard Lopate-at-Large's executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the great work that they do throughout the week. You can access our archive of over 500 shows at WBAI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a moment to ask you to support the station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at large and all of the other great programs in WBAI, we need your help to keep it all going. So please make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give2wbai.org to or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. That's 212-209-2950 to keep the unique in-depth uh, content that we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Remember that we are totally dependent on our, our listeners, 100% listener supported. One great way to support the station throughout the year is to become a sustaining member, of what we call a BAI buddy. But however you donate, please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopit at large. And a big thanks to everyone who is who is helping to keep us on the air with her generosity. I hope you can tune in again tomorrow with Dame Manoush Shafik, the uh, director of the London School of Economics. will discuss her latest book, What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract for a Better Society. We'll see you then.